nine words that pretty well summarize what our mission is, sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. We've talked about sending, we've talked about transformed, in the last few weeks we've been talking about this phrase, influencing people for Christ, influencing their world for Christ. And so when you send a person, they are to influence their world for Christ, what does influence mean? Well, the definition we've used for influence is influence is an effect of one person on another. It moves a person to action. And so whenever you have influence on somebody, it means you have an effect on that person. And then oftentimes that influence causes that person to do some type of action. You move that person to action. And the definition of influence from the, from the original Greek that uh, was in the New Testament meant something like a sphere of activity, a, a measurement, an area. And so every one of us with influence have certain spheres of activity that we have our influence. And we've talked about that we have influence. We talked about the sphere of activity in the church, of influence in the church. Then we talked about the influence at work. And today we want to talk about influence at home. Influence at home. It's a sphere of activity. It is where as a, uh, as a wife or as a mother, as a husband, as a father, as a child, or even other family members within a home, there's influence that takes place. And that is your sphere. That's your sphere that has been appointed by God. And so we have used Newton's cradle over here. And uh, Newton's cradle is something that you know that when you pull back one of these spheres and then it hits another stationary sphere, through the force it causes an action to take place. And because of the action of this one sphere, it affects another. And so it's like when you bring it back and then all of a sudden it goes back and forth. There's an influence there. You're impacting the life of someone else. And when you think about how long this will go, the reason it'll go a long time is because that influence is over and over and over. And I can't think of a better illustration than what it is to be in a home, because when you're in a home, you are there influencing each other every day. Every day there's that influence. And so as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, or maybe another family member that's living in the home, Every day, there is that influence going one way or another. And our goal is for it to be an influence for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. And so today, we are going to look at influence in the home. And um, the home today is a lot different than when I was growing up. In 1960, uh, when I was seven years of age, 73% of all children were living in a home in which their parents were married and it was their first marriage, 73%. 54 years later in 2014, less than half of the children, 46%, live in a home in which the parents are married and it was their first marriage. That's gone from 73% all the way down to 46%. In 1960, 9% of the homes were single-parent homes. Today, 26%, a 300% increase, single-parent homes. So the whole family dynamic has changed. But what I want you to understand is when we open up God's Word and we look into God's Word, it transcends culture. 
It would speak the same in 1960 as it does today in 2017. And so we're going to read a passage of Scripture found in Ephesians chapter 5. And as we read this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, and then it will bleed into chapter 6, I want you to listen to this and know that once we finish reading that passage, we will then take three different groups and look at influence in the home. We're going to look at wives and mothers, we're going to look at at fathers and husbands, and we will look at children. We will look at those three. But let's read this passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in the 22nd verse. And this is Paul writing a letter to a church in, uh, in Ephesus, and as he's writing to them, he's beginning to talk to them about family relations. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want us to walk through this and we'll look at it and maybe look at it a little differently than maybe you've looked at it before. First of all, wives and mothers. Now, when you talk about wives and mothers, you look at Ephesians chapter 5, you look at verse 22, and all of a sudden you're hit with that very first verse where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Sad to say, in our culture, most people, when they read that word, the S word, submit, okay? When they read that and they read submission, this is what they think it means. It means that you're supposed to swallow your feelings, turn off your brain, and never express your opinion. And that is just totally opposite of what the Bible means when it says submit. The word submit, written in the original language in which which the New Testament is written, is a Greek word called hupotasso, hupotasso. I tell you that because it's made up of two sections, hupo and tasso. Hupo is a word that means under. Tasso means to arrange. It means you arrange something under. It's a military term that is like to rank under. You arrange or order oneself under the authority of another one. It's not coercive, it's voluntary. It's not coercive, it's voluntary. It's not coercive, it's voluntary. You submit to one another. You arrange yourself under a person of authority. This term carries none of the damaging misconceptions of high control and manipulation 
But instead, it connotes teamwork and mutual respect. Because you see, a husband and a wife, when they come into a family, come together and they get married, they have the same goal. And that is to have a healthy, growing, Christ-honoring, supportive family. We're on the same page when we first get started. And so, but it says in here that the wives are to submit to their husbands. And you see, so many times we've looked at this verse and it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then we just move on and we keep talking about what submission means. Read that verse pretty clearly and very closely. Wives, submit to your husbands, how? As to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The way that is written, what that says is, Wives, first of all, you need to submit to, your, to submit to the Lord. And then when you submit to the Lord, you begin to take what you've learned in submitting to the Lord and then apply that in submitting to your husband. Thus, you take this experience of submission to God and take the things you've learned in submitting to God, and then you take that and you submit to your husband. Let me give you the very first point, and it is this. Influence starts in the home when wives learn to submit to the Lord. Wives are not called, first of all, submit to their husbands. They're first called to submit to the Lord. It says, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. So that means it starts out with you submitting to the Lord. So influence starts at the home When a wife learns to submit to the Lord, that means to align herself under God's authority, subject her will to his control. Listen, if we're to the point to where in our Christian life, we will not even submit to God's authority, we're not going to submit to any other human level of authority. And so in a home, when it's asked a wife to be able to submit to the authority or the leadership of the husband, it starts off by saying, as to the Lord. So that means that you need to have submitted to the Lord. This is a challenge for, for all the women here, whether you're uh, in a home, uh, whether your wife or mother, whichever, it says, first of all, you are submit to the Lord. But then number two, then the wife is instructed to graciously and voluntarily line up under the leadership and authority of her husband. To graciously line up under the leadership and authority of her husband. She learns to submit to her husband by submitting to the Lord. And we need to always understand, when God created man and woman, he created them equals. And man and women are created equal. Even Paul talks about it later. There's no difference, male, female. They created equal. But once you get into the marriage relationship, we have different roles. And the different roles is that somebody has to lead. Marriage is a lot like dancing. And that's heretical in a Baptist church. All right, you ready? But a marriage is a lot like dancing. And if you ever took dance lessons, one of the very first things they ever told you is somebody has to what? Lead and somebody has to follow. Now, if both people try to lead, what is the result? A lot of stepped on toes and a lot of chaos going over. I lead. No, I'm going to lead. I'm going to lead. I'm going to lead. It doesn't happen. It's a dance. Somebody's got to lead. You got to let them lead. Someone's got to follow. You got to sit there and you follow. That's the way marriage is. It's a dance. Somebody has to lead. Somebody has to follow. And when God was designing marriage, he designed it, he designed it so that the man would have that responsibility. He says a man is no greater than a woman. He says you're created equal. 
However, when we come into marriage relationship, somebody has got to lead, and that is the man's responsibility. And so a wife could sit there and say, well, why should I submit to my husband? And you look at verse 23 and 24, and it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. And so now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So that means you submit to his leadership. You see what that means is you go through life and everybody's got their own responsibilities there in the home. And there will come times when some decisions need to be made. And a wife may say, I think it's A. And the husband says, I think it's B. They talk about it. They pray about it. And she still says, I think it's A. And he still says it's B. But somebody's got to make a decision. That responsibility falls on the husband. He has to make that call. And he makes that call. And when he makes that call, it doesn't necessarily mean he always says, I'm going to go with, with what I want. When he makes that call, he may say, okay, I'm still leaving B, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with A. Go with what you say. When the husband makes the call, he's not going to be right every time. He's going to, it's going to be wrong. There's some decisions they'll make and it just didn't work out. But you see, it's the wife's responsibility in submitting to the authority of the church. That is not one of those nanny, nanny, poo-poo moments, all right? Where you go, you made that last decision. It didn't work. Nanny, nanny, poo-poo. That's not it. It's when you work together as a team and you just join back together. What do we learn from that? And let's just keep on moving forward. He takes that responsibility. But the wife has to get to the point to where she comes under that authority and under that particular leadership. And it says that we're to do this because Christ is the head of the church. And when she submits to Christ, uh, when, the, when she submits to her husband, it's like the church submitting to Christ. And so let me give you this third point, which talks about influence, and that is model your love and respect for Christ, your husband, and the church, thus teaching and influencing your children. It's a lot to say there. You got strong hands. Write this down. Are you ready? Model your love and respect for Christ, your husband, and the church. And when you do this, you will teach and influence your children. You see, as that stays up there for you to write this down, verse 24 says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Wouldn't it be great in your home that if you're modeling what Christ has said here, and as a wife, you submit to the leadership and authority of your husband, and as you get into discussions with your children, you model this, and when questions come up, you can say, yes, I am uh, submitting to the authority of our husband even as the church submits to Christ. And all of a sudden, your child is beginning to understand what it means for someone to submit to the leadership of someone else. Someone begins to understand what it means to have that love and respect. And so they began to have a greater love and respect, not only for their family, but also for the church. You know, there's this so much talk about how young people leave the church after they graduate from high school. And all the statistics show that, that, uh, uh, that there's like a turning of the faith or they're not getting involved in the church. And one of the ways to help turn that tide is maybe in the home when we live out what God says and as people see what it's like for, uh, for a 
A wife to submit to her husband, or as it says in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, we submit to one another, and we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And they see that submission of, of them to each other, and they see a love and respect that a husband and a wife have for each other, and they understand that it's the same as the church submitting to Christ, then maybe they see there's more to this than just showing up at 9.30 in the morning that there's something greater about this. And they begin to understand the greatness of, of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and understanding what it means to, to have a love and respect for our Savior. And so this, this is the influence that happens in the home. And so the wife can set that up. Listen, mothers have a powerful influence in the home. One of the greatest examples is uh, Jochebed. Uh, Jochebed was Moses' mother. You're talking about a Three kids, good gracious, Miriam, Aram, and, and Aaron, and Moses. Miriam, she becomes this great poet and a prophetess. Aaron, the very first high priest. Moses, whoa, everybody knows Moses. Led them, uh, the children of Israel, out of uh, captivity in Egypt and leads them right to the edge of the promised land. Whoa. But you see, you know that story was that when Moses was born, that um, there was a decree to be able to kill uh, the baby boys, the Jewish boys, because they, they were growing so fast as slaves there in Egypt. And, uh, and she just felt there was something special about this baby, and she kept him as long as she could. And then all of a sudden, when he began to cry and other things, she knew she couldn't keep him much longer. So uh, she and her, her, her daughter, they come up with this idea to, to make this little basket of reeds, and they put him there in the river where Pharaoh's uh, daughter was bathing. And sure enough, she saw the baby, and God pinched him just at the right time so he'd cry. And, <laughs> and she saw it, and she picked him up, and she just fell in love with him. And she says, I would, I'd like to adopt this child. And amazingly, <laughs> Moses' sister comes around the corner, Miriam, and she says, hey, I got someone that could probably help you take care of it. Yeah, that'd be great. So what she does is she gets the mom to take care of Moses. And so she takes care of him until he gets to the point where he can go just live over there in Pharaoh's house. So for the youngest years of Moses' life, Jochebed was pouring into him along with her husband and Miriam. Now look at this verse of Scripture. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, it says this. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Now think about Moses' life. Pharaoh's daughter has adopted him into their family. So he's living in Pharaoh's household. He was raised in Pharaoh's house with the life of opulence. He grew up in a household that had little regard for the slaves or for their plight in life. He was taught by the best professors in a godless school system and was even told that his grandfather, Pharaoh, who allowed the adoption, was a god himself. And so in the midst of this polyistic teaching, a godless school system, a lifestyle that really thought that we were the privileged and everybody else was beneath us, and for all those years, it says that he excelled in that because he was mighty in words and deeds. He excelled in his education, and he was well-respected. And so Moses, for the majority of his life, learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but it did not discount what he learned at the knee of his mother. Because when Jochebed had Moses, there were things that she taught him. She taught him the truth about God. <clears throat> she pictured for him the heroes of the faith. She taught him to be sympathetic toward the unfortunate. She taught him to be intolerant toward injustice. And she taught him about the God of Israel. 
You say, how do you, how do you know all that? Because when Moses, who was part of Pharaoh's house, saw some Egyptians beating up a Hebrew slave, he stepped in on the slave's behalf and stopped it. Now, he went too far. He murdered one of the men that were beating up on the slave. But for some reason, he saw that there was injustice. For some reason, he understood the plight of the slaves, and he stepped in, and he did something. Now, he murdered a man, which was not good. He tried to cover it up, and all of a sudden, word got out what he'd done, and so he fled for his life. And he went out into the desert, and when he was out in the desert and he began to work for someone, he goes to the far end of the desert and sees this burning bush, and it's God speaking in the bush. And God told him, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it said that Moses turned away from him because he knew who he was. How did he know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were? They didn't teach that in the Pharaoh school in Egypt. He learned that from his mother. How did he know about the holiness of God? He learned it from his mother. How did he learn about an intolerance for injustice? He learned it from his mother. And so she taught him about this God of Israel. And guess what happened? Is that what the world taught Moses didn't affect him as much as what his parents taught him. Because in Hebrews eleven twenty four through 25, this is what it says. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. The majority of his life was being poured into by things that were antithetical to the gospel. But yet what happened was his mother poured into him and he went with those teachings. And that brings up uh, number three. And... uh, which I think I just said, modeling your love and respect uh, on there. And so what happens is, is when Moses turns his back on his upbringing in Egypt, he then called up the things that had been taught to him as a child. Listen, children need something more than the material things of life. It is important for us to provide physical needs in life, but it is more important to provide them with a godly influence. And so wives and mothers in the home You are to, first of all, submit yourself to the Lord, and then if married, submit yourself to the authority of your husband, and then teach and model your love and respect for Christ, your husband, and the church, thus influencing your children. Now, husbands and fathers, come to verse 25. Husbands and fathers. The very first thing it says is, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, Similar to the the wife, let me talk to the men for a moment. Number one, influence starts in the home with the husband imitating Christ and then walking in love as Christ loved him. It starts in the home with the husband imitating Christ and then walking in love as Christ loved him. You say, where do you get that? In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Men in the home, it starts out with you imitating Christ. For us as men, 
It starts out. We don't just step in and begin to exert our authority or leadership over our wives because if we are not imitating Christ and loving as Christ does, we would have a tendency in our authority and in our leadership to begin to be oppressive to our wives. But before I step into that role of leadership, I need to step into imitating Christ. I need to live my life as Christ, and then what I do is I love as Christ. And if I do that, then I'm off to a good stuff. Listen, it doesn't start out with a bunch of do's and don'ts and boxes to check to show that you love your wife. It starts with a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ that results in you leading a life that imitates the life of Christ. You walk in in love and you display that love to your wife. So I just hope you understand this. This is not like, okay, we're going to read a book on marriage and it says, husbands, you're to lead your wife. You're to be the, the head of the house. You start out, first of all, imitating Christ. Live like Christ. Love as Christ. You start that way. Then as you build on that relationship, that puts you in the better position to be the one that leads his wife. When you get married, according to Scripture, that's the way the relationship is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a wife submit to her husband. Her husband has leadership. But in order to be a good authority, to be a good leader, you want to be imitating Christ in your walk, and you want to be loving as Christ loves. You're constantly building on that relationship as you're leading this relationship. Does that make sense? When you stop building on this relationship with Christ and all you're doing is leading here, you will find yourself leading in a poor way, and you will not be leading your wife as you should. You will not be that headship. You need to be imitating the life of Christ, loving as Christ loved. And as you're growing here, guess what? You'll grow in your leadership over here. So it starts out with that. You say, so he says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Give you some things real quick for you to write down. Number one, self-denial. Self-denial. How did he love the church? Jesus did what? He stepped out of eternity into time and he laid aside all his privileges of deity. He denied himself even to the point of death. Self-denial. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ stepped out of heaven, saw that we were separated from God because of our sins and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He denied himself. He denied his own will, and he says, Father, I'll do what your will is. There was self-denial there. Number two is there's a sacrificial love. And number three is it's a servant's heart. A sacrificial love and a servant's heart. Sacrificial love, it was unconditional. It was unconditional. And that means there are times when we need to surrender our own agendas, our hobbies, etc., to serve our wives and our family and not just on Mother's Day. It is when we say, I have a love for you, my wife, that is built around self-denial, surrender, and a servant's heart. It's everything that Jesus did. And when he says here, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, this is how he loved the church. Denied himself, sacrificial love, and had a servant's heart. So oftentimes we get right there. And we stop. But since the emphasis was influencing your world for Christ, 
Every time I read through these passages, I kept looking for where does it say Lord, where does it say Christ, and what does that mean? And I got to tell you, Christ and Lord are in here a whole lot more than I thought it was. And, and it, this little section over here that many times I've just skipped over kind of got me a little excited. Are you ready for this? Okay, now hang on here. You got to follow with me on here. All right, it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Usually we stop there. That, when you see the word that, that means it's a purpose. Why did Jesus do this? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So he might sanctify her. That word sanctify means to set apart. And so if you can just picture in your mind, there is just this group of people. All of us are sinners and we're all separated from God. God's over there. Everybody else is over here. Jesus dies on the cross to sanctify us, to set us apart, to provide a provision for the payment for sin. And when we receive that gift, then we become people that come over here and we're a part of God's family. We have been set apart. He said, I did that to set you apart, to sanctify you. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 27, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, this is another purpose. All right, so what is he gonna do here? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Look at it again. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He didn't just want to set you apart over here, but he wants to present the church, his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. He says, I want to present my bride in splendor. That means highly valued. That means highly esteemed. I want, he wants to present the church. The church represents corporate believers, okay? And he wants to present them. But not just that, without spot, no stains, or wrinkle, any spiritual defects. We're not talking about cosmetic surgery there. We're talking about spiritual. No spot, no wrinkle, no spiritual defect, so that she might be holy, morally perfect, without blemish, no marring effects of sin. Christ loves the church so that one day in heaven he might present her to himself as a glorious bride, spotless and pure. When you go to the book of Revelation and you come to the end, it says there's like this marriage between uh, Christ and the church and the church comes and he looks at the church and it's spotless and it's pure and then he wants to present it in all of its splendor. And because he has such an incredible love for us as believers, he said, I came to die on the cross so that you could come into the family of God but then I want you to be spotless and pure. And, and then I, and with joy, I want to present you, wow, in all your splendor. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Let me give you your fourth point, and that is set her apart in splendor. Set her apart in splendor. Okay, guys, this is where it gets fun. This is more than you just sitting there saying, 
Ephesians 5.25, I got to love you as Christ loved the church. I know that. I got to sacrifice. Okay. And we're guilty of that. Okay. You know, sometimes we have to do something we don't want to do and we mumble under our breath with a little spiritual thing. Eh, loved wife. It's like Christ loved the church. God, I got to sacrifice. Okay. Servant's hard. I'm over here. I'm picking up the garbage. Okay. You know, whatever it is. And, and we got to, that little that thing about, well, they stuck that in there. You know, I know she's got the big submission, but I got the sacrificial love and um, all of these S words flowing around that we got to deal with. But in this, when you read it further, it comes and it says, why did Jesus do all this? And he goes down there so that he could present her and her splendor. That means, guys, that when we get married to our wives, you think about that wedding day. And on that wedding day, she wanted everything to be perfect. I mean, they're perfect. She wanted to have that wedding dress that had no wrinkles, no stains, no blemishes. And she comes walking down that aisle. And I tell every, uh, every groom when I do a wedding, is, um, and, and especially in the old days when they didn't take the pictures beforehand, but it was the first time they'd ever seen her in her dress, I said, it is the most beautiful sight you've ever seen. And I'll never forget, there was a guy that was standing right down here. And it's the most beautiful sight you've ever seen. I'm standing right here. And she's walking down. And as soon as she gets down here, he looked at me and says, you're right. <laughs> wow. I mean, that is it. That was her in her splendor. But what is so sad is what we do a lot of times as husbands, we say, well, that was it. You kind of peeked out. Uh, that's it for splendor. No. No, not at all. It's a Christ died for the church so that he could one day present her in that splendor, which means, guys, every day, this is what we are to do. This is how we love our wives. Our desire is to present her in her splendor. And what we want to do is we want to help her. We want to help her to grow in godliness. We want to be that spiritual leader that helps provide that direction so she can be more like her Savior. And she, and she could be the one who has no stain, no wrinkle, no blemish. And I'm talking about from a spiritual standpoint. And then she, she can be even closer to her Lord and imitate his life. And we get to lift her up in splendor. We get to do that. That's what we get to do. And to make your wife just, just like on that wedding day, every day, we get to do that. Man, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And then look what he does. He goes even further. And, and it says in the same way in verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. He says, then we come back and we nourish her and we cherish her on there. And, and you know, when you think about your nurturing and, and nourishing means to nurture. So I'm nurturing her and I'm meeting her needs and I'm cherishing her and I'm, I'm being tender with her and I'm loving on her. This is every day we get to do this. And he says, we do that just as Christ does the body. Because we're members of his body. And then the last thing he says is stay together. Stay together. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Hold fast. That means cleave. That means to weave together. Stay together. You set her apart in splendor, you will stay together. And men, I would tend to step out and say that if you will 
kind of set your wife up and for splendor, I think it's easier to stay together. Because they'll come tough times. But if every day I'm involved in self-denial and surrender and a servant's heart, and then all of a sudden I come up over here and I'm setting her apart in splendor, then I will stay together. Nurture her, cherish her, stay together. You know, it, it's that Otis Redding song in the 1960s, you know, when he says, you got to hold her, you got to squeeze her, you got to never leave her, you got to, got to, got to try tenderness. You know, I mean, Otis knew. He knew what it was. That's to nurture, that's to cherish, that's to stay together. I mean, if he can sing it in the 1960s, we can practice it in 2017. It's biblical right here. So guys, that's it. Let me give you the third point here. You model this love and commitment for your children so they will see how much you love your wife and better understand how Christ loves the church. Many of you will send me an email and say, I didn't get to write all that down. I'll be more than glad to send that to you, but we're going to leave it up on the screen for you to read it because I think it's very important. Men, you model this love and commitment for your children so they will see how much you love your wife and better understand how Christ loves the church. It all comes back to Christ and his glory. It's not just so I can see how much you love the wife, that's good. But it also helps me to better understand how Christ loves the church, okay? How does Christ love the church? Well, son or daughter, you see how much I love your mom? It's just a glimpse of how much Christ loves the church. Chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That means don't exaggerate their faults or discourage them with unreasonable demands and expectations, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, your home is the sphere of influence to use God's word as a lamp for their feet and a light to their path, and you explain both the discipline and instruction according to God's word. So men, we have the opportunity with our children, and this would be both fathers and mothers, to discipline our children and instruct them in the word of the Lord. And that brings us, excuse me, to the fourth point, and that is help your children have a love for the word of God. Help your children have a love for the word of God. Teach them how to use it, how to make decisions, how to be their guide. You know, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and he was hungry, been there 40 days, and all of a sudden Satan told him, if you'll take the rocks and turn to bread, everything will be great. And Jesus came back. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. And everybody quotes that and leaves it right there. Man shall not live by bread alone. But the rest of that statement is, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is our instruction. That is our direction. And that's what we're to do with our children. Listen, I'll tell you how exciting it is when we baptize children up here and, and I'll ask them what their testimony is and to hear so many of them say, I was at home and my mom and my dad prayed with me. I was at home and I had a family member that helped me lead. Wow, that's part of our responsibility to help lead our children to Christ and teach them and to instruct them. You know, we talked about this Newton's Cradle and, um, and how that that influence, and uh, as, uh, as you influence, then all of a sudden you've got a child, let's say, over here who catches on that. I got a note that was shared with me this week 
from a, um, uh, a daughter of one of the shut-ins in our church. And every Christmas, our deacons who are assigned the shut-ins uh, will go and take them a poinsettia or some other Christmas gift to them during the Christmas season. And she wrote a note, and she said, I want to thank you so much for the poinsettia that was delivered uh, to my mother. And she said, but more importantly, I really appreciated the young man and his two children that came to visit with her. All she talked about was how special it was for that young man and his two kids to come and visit with us. And she said, my mother has been in a nursing home for a number of years, and it just seems like the number of people that visit her get less and less. And as much as we appreciate the poinsettia, let me again say, we appreciate so much this young man and his two kids coming. And she put in the note, I apologize that I don't know who it was because the nurse did not get their name. I knew exactly who it was. When I first read it, I said, I think there's only one. I said, it's Brian Johnson. And sure enough, I checked with him, and it was Brian Johnson. And he took his two kids out there. Why did you think it was Brian Johnson? It's because his dad, Kent Johnson, when he was a deacon, years ago when those kids were young, he would take them to the nursing homes, and they would go visit, and they would visit with them. And all I could think about was Newton's cradle over here, how one dad took an action, invested in the life of his sons, and now all of a sudden his sons are at the point where as an adult, I'm blessed with children, I'm going to do that same experience and go out there. That's influence, folks. That's influence. The very last thing, I know we're long, I'll just be real quick, I'll just give you two things to write down. Children, what are children supposed to do? Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, obey your parents. That involves a recognition of authority to do what one is told. To honor, it means to show respect and love. And so children, it says you're to obey your parents. You obey your parents as long as you're under their care. And then once you're out from under their care, you're not, you're not beholden to obey them. You're on your own. But you are to honor them as long as they're living. That carries on for a lifetime. We are to honor our parents on that. Whether your parents are believers or not, you're to honor them and obey them in all things. You're to obey them in all things except if they're ever asking you to do something that's immoral, unethical, and i got to add this because of our culture, or perverted. If any parent asks you anything immoral, unethical, or perverted, you can say no to that. But everything else, we're to obey our parents, and we're to honor them. So let me give you two things here. Number one, obedience and honor is a powerful witness to unsaved parents. Uh, excuse me, obedience and honor of your parents. Which is one did you have up there? Obedience and honor of parents influences your parents. That's what we got. All right. Obedience and honor of your parents influences your brothers and sisters and your peers who see this honor lived out. Now think about that. As kids in a family, and especially as older children, when you obey your parents and you honor your parents, it's an influence to your other brothers and sisters. And it's an also an influence to your peers. You know those buddies that come over to play with you? And all of a sudden your mom or your dad says, hey, do this. And whenever you're obedient to that, they see that. Because they say, you know, I don't act like that with my parents. Well, I do with mine. 
and obey them and I honor them. And why do you do that? Obey and honor them because that's what God's Word says. And He gives them an opportunity to talk about that. And so it's a great influence. And so children, we've got an influence. That's your sphere of influence. That's what you have been assigned this time in life. And number two is this, obedience and honor is a powerful witness to unsaved parents and siblings. There are a number of children that come to receive Christ as Savior and they live in a home where mom and dad don't know Christ. And when they go back into that home, I've heard numerous testimonies of moms and dads say, there's something different about you. (laughs) You're nicer, you're kinder, you're more obedient. What's going on with this? And just all they know is that, well, Jesus is changing my life, and this is why I'm doing this. And we have seen parents come to know Christ because of the life that their children lived. That's your sphere of influence. And so for those that are, that are children and, and, and you make decisions for Christ, you're living in a home in which there's, there's, there's a parent or, two, or both parents that don't know Christ as Savior, you continue to live this life of Christ. Follow his direction. And you'll be able to see families, hopefully come to know Christ as Savior. So I've given you a ton, and I know it's Mother's Day. If I had to summarize everything in something that you can do in bite sizes, this is what it is. Live like Christ. Love as Christ. Lead through Christ. And lead others to Christ. Those four things, think. You live like Christ. The Bible says we're to be imitators of Christ. We are to live like Christ. Moms, dads, kids, live like Christ. Number two, love as Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. Have that type of love. Lead through Christ. Men, we have a responsibility to be the head of the home, the authority. That authority comes by Christ. We are to lead through Christ because he has given us that authority. And then number four is lead others to Christ. Through the witness of our homes, may we lead others to Christ. It may be siblings. It may be other uh, husbands or wives that are there in the home, the moms, dads. But we can lead others to Christ through that particular sphere of influence. And may we be people that affect the lives of others right there in that important sphere. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Father, we thank you so much for this day and thank you for the home that you have given us. And Lord, I understand that there are difficult situations in, in many, of, many of our homes, but yet, Lord, we know that you are God and Lord over all and that our call is to continue to live for you. Our call is to be an influence where you've placed us. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us today that we will take seriously the commands you've given us in Scripture. And may we be imitators of Christ. And may we love as Christ does. And as we do those things, then as we travel through life, you will help us walk through and navigate all the pathways ahead of us and help us to be in a position to lead other people to, who, to know who Jesus is. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.